Our lesson this week is on awakening intuition by having a sense of unity with all of life. Intuition is the ability to perceive directly realities that appear to be separate from our experience, but in fact, on subtle levels, are united. So the visualization we're doing is to establish this sense of interconnectedness because when we have that faith in the interconnectedness then we can call upon the knowledge inherent in any aspect of universal creation and we will have a channel for it to come to us. So the image that Swami suggests to us is that we imagine a a beautiful web as if woven by a spider. And think how beautiful the pattern can be, how delicate the threads, how far-reaching the expanse of that web could be. And in this case, the expanse is literally infinite. And each of the threads is like a tiny thread of golden light. And how sometimes in the morning the dew condenses on flower buds and on anything fine and delicate. So imagine that those delicate threads of golden light woven into this beautiful pattern, and you see that pattern as all of creation. You imagine this room, the streets outside this room, the city extending around it, And even with all those different forms, you can see imposed upon them or radiating from within them, they're all moving on this beautiful woven web of golden light. So that even though the bodies may appear separate, we're all moving on that web of golden light. And through that, are all connected to one another. Swami suggests, I was saying with the dewdrops, that instead of thinking of all of these bodies now, reduce every little individual consciousness to like a single drop of light. We are on these threads of golden light, and individually we are these little drops of light, like little rainbows, little pearls, scattered all over that web all of us with our individual consciousness, but yet, because we rest upon the web, we are literally united with every other consciousness that also touches that web, which is to say everything. Feel that all life, all wisdom, all understanding flow into us and through us, that there is no aspect of creation that is not accessible to us through this web of light. Now repeat this affirmation. I am one with everything in existence. Truth itself is mine. mine. 
And I am part of all truth. I am one with everything in existence. Truth itself is mine. And I am part of all truth. I am one with everything in existence. Truth itself is mine. And I am part of all truth. Om peace. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. Okay. Yes, Jason. You may or may not want to go into this now, but I give you the option, of course. Uh, it's sun, Saturday or Sunday at the village when Swami spoke. He said something that caused a little consternation for some of us. Uh-huh. And it was that we should all sell all our stocks and buy gold. Did he actually say that? Yes, he oh. actually said that. <laughs> well, um, Swamiji has never felt... He writes... I mean, there's a further lesson. There's a lesson that comes later here where he, he doesn't... Um, he, he writes against the principle of earning your money through the stock market. He calls it... He, he doesn't consider it to be a creative, a real creative expression. He considers it to be... He, has, he uses words. It comes up later. So you're starting with a bias in that direction, which he explains. If you've skipped ahead, you'll read it. I don't remember which lesson it is. But he raises questions about... Not about the efficacy of making money, but about whether or not it's the best way for, this, for an individual to realize their own potential. That, that would be the way I would put it. And it's a very, we shouldn't be afraid to ask the question. It's a very real question. The second thing is that he is extremely uh, focused on uh, the predictions that he heard Master say, in which Master really predicted a very serious economic collapse in which money in the stock market would be worthless. And he has long encouraged us to turn whatever money we have into, into solid assets, whether it's land or, or commodities of real value. So he's just speaking consistently with that point of view. I have, um, I have no independent knowledge of it, um, so I can only say that this is what he says. It certainly makes a lot of sense. And yeah, sure, it's disconcerting. He's trying to get us to act. People become a little jaded because they have lots of other input telling them what the economy is and isn't going to do. They become a little jaded because this is not the first time Swami has expressed to us that there was an imminent collapse coming. The quality and quantity of the way he's talking about it now is, is different. And the um, external support for that point of view is stronger than it's ever been. So um, he's just trying to help us. He feels obligated. Um, he, the way he's also expressed it to us, and this is those of us who've known Swami for all these years, um, he, he's always been talking about this because this was his experience. He went to Master in 1948. And, and in 1948, 
1952 until Master died, Master was constantly warning people and warning people with a, a thunderous concern that the karma of, of this country, that the whole world was going to hit extremely difficult times because the conflict between Dwapara Yuga and Kali Yuga was going to result in a, a, a head-on collision and that collision would, would destroy a lot of, well, countries, systems, wealth. He also repeatedly has said simply that America is, even though it has a very good karma and is a very spiritual nation, is way out of balance and that there will be a fierce correction on that and that worldwide consciousness is out of balance. He said all this in 1948. I mean, World War II had barely ended and he's predicting this. Of course... Time is the hardest part of prophecy. And Master died in 52, and it was, that was the only time he had to say it. Um, he, the way Swamiji, when, when others have said to Swami, essentially, sir, you've been saying this for 50 years and it hasn't happened. He said, if you had been there and heard Master, he said, Master left no doubt of the magnitude and of the certainty of it. And the power of his warning, Swamiji said, if you had heard him, you know, as I heard him, and he said, Master made it seem like you better do it today because tomorrow is too late. And of course, now it's been almost 60 years, and in human terms, that seems like a long time. So that causes one to doubt. Um, but um, I don't doubt, Swami. But I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't have... Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a financial person. I don't have lots of money. You know, I, don't have, I don't have anything to do about it, except it just is what it is. But I don't doubt it. Exactly how and what will manifest, I don't know. But yeah, it's quite disconcerting. But he said it a hundred times. It's sort of like, yeah, he said it more forcefully. He's saying it much more forcefully now than he's ever said it. So I said, there's a quality and quantity to what he's saying. I mean, he's told us, you know, leave the city, go buy land in the country. A group of all the colony leaders were there and said, excuse me, sir, you know, what is it exactly we're supposed to do? And he, he, he didn't tell us to abandon our posts, you know, because we all have work to do here. He has told us he thought there would be times when it wouldn't be possible to live in this area. And so I, I visualize us walking to Ananda Village as I joke with... <laughs> Mary Weber has this three-car garage which is full of costumes, fabulous costumes. I said, you know, the day will come when the Palo Alto colony, it just won't be safe to live in Palo Alto for a time. I think it'll stabilize here again, but we won't be able to stay. And we won't, there won't be any gasoline, so we'll all walk to the village without luggage. And when we arrive, we'll dress out of the costume shop. <laughs> I was joking with Jack Wallace, who has a flair for this sort of thing. I said, I think wearing a purple dress and a feather boa will add greatly to the entertainment value of the whole experience, don't you? <laughs> but uh, it's been part of Ananda's consciousness for as long as there's been an Ananda that, and it's been part of my own consciousness ever since I was a child, and probably many of us, in the sense that you look at it, which is the great worldwide situation, and you do not understand how it can go on indefinitely. Because it doesn't feel natural. You know, there's just too much. The population is so large, the, the tensions are so great, uh, the greed has gotten so crazy, the moral structure has gotten so out, the music 
as Swamiji just says, it's like the music is driving the world to violence. When you, you can tell what the consciousness of a, a culture is by listening to the music. There's the myth, I think it is, about the Chinese emperor who just went around his country and listened to the music, and, and he could tell whether his country was healthy or unhealthy. Well, honey, listen to the music. You know, if you listen to the music without even hearing the words, you can tell that somebody's getting ready to kill somebody. It's just obvious. It's, it's just trying to blow itself to bits. It's a, so all of that eventually has to go somewhere, and we always think it won't happen to us. I mean, it's just the way it is. But generations that have been through two wars know that it can happen. Three wars, four wars, Korea, Vietnam, you know. And it just seems like it's going to happen. I mean, even without the voice of the masters, it seems like it's going to happen. So a little bit of sensible planning. There's very sensible things that people do. I mean, I've heard all about it. You buy small, you buy silver and gold. You buy small denominations. And you have a, a, an item in your hand. Also, the possibility of inflation. And I am no expert, so please don't counter me with you know, economic positions because I don't approach this from economics. I don't study the subject. But it, it seems to me from the tiny bit I know that the present course of the present national government is going to cause the dollar to become less and less valuable. It just seems like the economy is a mess without a lot of... Um, possibilities of hope. Now, having said all of that, our real and only preparation is our consciousness. You know, and if, if we find ourselves in positions where we just have to keep doing what we're doing, especially if we're in serviceful positions, doing serviceful work, um, some, one of these, you know, disaster predictors said basically there are no, that, that safe areas are not created by geography, but by consciousness. That was very interesting. And I, I sort of feel like we don't have a reason to, to be in this area or what we're doing, except that we're here to serve because this is where people live. You know, years ago when Ananda moved out from its pleasant country retreat, it was, if you're going to reach people, you have to go where the people are. We can't just sit up here in the hills, which we did happily for the first 15 years, and just expect the world to come to our door, we had to make some effort to go out to where the people are. And I just, I find it hard to imagine that God would have planted us here and given us such an established way to serve and not want us to continue doing it. Um, but how we do it and whether we lose our money, whether we lose our property, all of that is n- not the point if we keep our consciousness. But if one is holding money in the bank, one can at least put a percentage of it into hard assets. I mean, why not? If one is completely into the stock market, I mean, I'm sure you all, if you are, have already long since thought about how you were going to deal with that. You know, this is, these are really unpredictable times. I've done a, I, just because, partly because I was, I'm Jewish, I was talking to the Gamals who are also Jewish. And we always expect to be thrown out of our homes and left, you know, just by the roadside. <laughs> She said, I'm not sure that everyone does, but we always do. It's just part of our thinking. I mean, even before the Second World War, I mean, it's just the way we always think. And I've spent, probably, with divine intention, I've read, I'm a, I, I like to read about circumstances that I'm never going to be, no, not never going to be, I like to read about people's lives. I've read a lot of different books about war and refugees and prisons and, you know, just all the kinds of 
things that happen when people's pleasant routines are blown to smithereens and all of a sudden they have to cope with something completely unexpected. So I have all these pictures in my mind of just how you organize and how you manage. And we have all of us. And I, I was told, and I don't even know if this is true, that, both, that in the last, was it the last depression, that both Palo Alto and Berkeley did better than some places because the citizens organized themselves. You know, because they would. Monroe Avenue, where we live, has an extraordinarily bright, competent group of people. Just our little circle there. I mean, they're just people who will not passively just allow things to disintegrate. And I know when we are in trouble, you know, we'll just figure out how to get out of trouble. And we'll walk to the village and we'll we'll wear purple velvet and feather boas. It could be worse, you know. Who knows, you know, what will happen. But I know Swami just keeps saying it over and over and we would be unwise not to heed him on some level. And there's no point in getting afraid. I mean, it's going to happen, it's not going to happen. I don't know, it seems like it's going to happen, as Swami said, if you had heard him. If you had heard Master say that, there would be no doubt in your mind. There's no recording of him saying it or no released recording of him saying it. Yeah, fair enough. But, I mean, we, you know, Swami has wanted us for some time to have a farm or something somewhere. We, we grow on our own property. And uh, I think having food in your house is a really good idea. I mean, look around. It, it would take about maybe 15 minutes for the grocery stores to be empty. I mean, it's just, it's a no-brainer. I mean, just a bad weather and the grocery stores are empty. I mean, you know, one should have, I would say, weeks, if not months, of edibles in your own house. Just so that you can, you know, if, things, if there's an immediate emergency that, the, that you can just manage. And recently, you know, the brilliant idea occurred to us that if you get whole grains, you can sprout them. And then, you know, 25 pounds of alfalfa seeds becomes enormously multiplied both in its sheer volume and in its food value, that you don't actually have to have a garden because you can sprout. And then you have all the benefits of fresh food. And so you can have really a lot of... I mean, this is not, you know, this is not like gourmet restaurant fare. This is, gosh, there's nothing to eat. Let's have alfalfa seeds for dinner, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the real collapse scenario that just allows you to cope and you know food is also, if things get that bad, food is also going to be a good thing to have your money in because it's a bargaining chip if it really comes to that. I mean, I just expect it to because my entire life with Swami, he's told us that we, it would come to this. And Daniel Brinkley also had the same visions. Others, I mean, everybody's having the same visions. It's a, a national industry now. The collapse of the world is a national industry. It's just happening all around us. I mean, you can just go to Costco and buy... A seven, you know, a, for seventy-five dollars, you can get a five-gallon tub that has a whole bunch of dehydrated food in it. It's not, to my mind, um, the most nutritious option, and I would rather put, you know, money into something more nutritious. But it's very convenient. Just get a few of those, and you won't starve. While while everybody gets reorganized. I mean, just one earthquake coming through here. Imagine. Yeah, I mean, let's not be stupid. Of course, it's going to happen. You think that mankind can? break the laws of God and nature with impunity forever? I mean, do you really think so? Do you really think this much greed and dissonance and, and 
devotion to the devil can really just go on and on and on without the world finally going, <laughs> you know, of course it's going to. It just will, whether it'll happen while we're still on the planet or after we've left it, I don't know. Whether we'll have the blessing of getting scraped off the planet in the first blow or have to hang around and pick up the pieces, I don't know. We'll see. And Swami, you know, he often mentions Kardikeyan saying that there's 30,000 known nuclear weapons in the world. And there's certainly quite a few lunatics. So, it's an exercise in not being afraid. Yes? On Yogananda's uh, prediction, how, how certain are you, do you think that's going to happen? The, the I can't imagine a great master standing up and saying, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm is coming, money won't be worth the paper it's printed on, the coming depression will make the last... Depression look like nothing. Uh, Russia will be annihilated. Europe will be devastated. I can't imagine him making those statements unless he meant them. So, I mean, that, that's where you stand. I never heard him say them, but Swami has reported to us that he did. So why would he say it if it wasn't true? And why would Swami say it if it wasn't true? Because it just scares the bejesus out of people. What good would it do unless, there was, unless one felt a divine obligation to do it? I also, again, as I say, I think it's just common sense. I said, all you have to do is listen to the music. And you, you feel this violent undertone. Yeah, it, it, I've heard it said about um, predictions of... <clears throat> this, I've, I've read it about individuals predicting uh-huh. um, things about individuals. And um, that it, it's, it's a reading of the energies that, right. that you give off at that point in time which you can change at any time and the prediction will not come true. And it's probably the reason why a lot of predictions don't come about because... They're mitigated by people's actions. So the question you're asking is, could consciousness... Could we mitigate these predictions by our consciousness? Um, uh, You know, some people get very upset when you make negative predictions because they declare, you're going to make those things happen by saying them. Um... There's a certain truth in that, but there's also an objective fact that when energies are in motion to simply describe them is not, is not creating them, it's simply describing them. Also to think that the human, the human opinion is actually the deciding factor in, in cosmic events is a little too egocentric for my taste. There's a, there's a, there's a strongly held desire among people who want to have powerful consciousness but not have God in the picture. And there's a whole huge movement, which I refer to at different times, where people want to be expansive, they want to be part of the great whole, but they want sort of man and his consciousness to be the top of that heap. And even though they'll talk about universal energy, they're not devotees. There's not this thought in their mind that there's this beneficent, transcendent power uh, of which we are simply an instrument and it's, it's our responsibility as devotees or disciples to tune into that and act according to its wisdom. That's um, offensive to some people. They want the power to be their own. So that movement leads to if we all just affirm, if we all just believe, if we're all just nice enough, then it will all be different. Um, I think that's admirable in the sense that at least then it gets people to try to do the right thing. But I think sooner or later, 
one's own experience simply throws you up against the limitations of that. First of all, you just can't get everybody together to do it because it doesn't take into account, that way of thinking doesn't take into account the, the presence of evil. And that's why, you know, Jesus talked about Satan, Hinduism talks about Maya. There is a counterforce. And so that counterforce is also out there rallying its troops and getting people to tune into it. And recognizing that there is a, a reality to that counterforce tells you that, that we're in something that's just more than just a question of affirmation. And that people are committed because they're in tune with that force. And just being nice to them is really not going to help. You know, even uh, Master commented that the reason Gandhi was able to win India by nonviolent means is because fundamentally the English are gentlemen. If they had practiced that in Russia or in Germany, they just would have been killed. You know, it was like there was it was it was a match. He was able to pull pull it off by moral force. But if he had been against a much more evil enter, uh, government, then he just would have been killed right at the beginning, and that would have been the beginning and the middle of the end of it. But he was matched against the British, energy to energy, and he could he could pull it off. Now. Um, Let's see, coming back to... Let me get get back to where you were. But it is true that conscious... that, that everything is about consciousness. And therefore, if we have the right consciousness, we do create magnetism that, of course, affects our circumstances. And if we... Um, develop right attitude without having to have harsh lessons, we've already skipped ahead and learned the lesson, that makes us out of tune with those um, disastrous vibrations and the way either they were not, were not quite in the path of them or the atmosphere we've created around us causes those forces to burn up a little bit before they reach us. We often talk about that. You're, you might have had the karma to break your arm, but instead you'll just get a bruise because the karma came at you, but the good magnetism you had developed burned, reduced it down to this, or the guru's intervention, one or the other. So it absolutely is possible by, by consciousness to create a change in circumstances. That's what the whole thing of this course is about. Globally, I think it's unlikely. But insofar as there are pockets of good consciousness, those places will be better. And that's one of the reasons why I think we're here and why I think this, these four walls are going to be a very important center point of a gathering place and a strengthening area for people, whatever the circumstances are outside these walls, to help people uh, find within themselves whatever strength they need to deal with whatever's going to come to us. And uh, the, uh, there have been people saying, you know, that these certain cataclysms were destined for the earth, but, but because there's been a positive response, certain disasters were mitigated or postponed and so on. But Yogananda never talked about this as an avoidable karma. Among other things, he said it was, it is the karma of America for the way we treated the Indians. And that's kind of a hard karma to undo. You know, that was a, a horrible black spot on the history of America, just an inexcusable black spot entirely on the basis of greed. And we built our wealth on the um, genocide we enacted upon those people. 
So there has always been this karmic retribution waiting to hit us. And he says it's going to. But since that time we have done many, 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 many generous things with our wealth. As, a, as This we're talking about mass karma for our country. So we'll come out okay in the end, but we're still going to have to pay it. And interestingly, and I want to correct this, I have said before that Master said it was because of the Indians and, the, and slavery, but I was wrong in that. Swamiji said, no, Master never mentioned slavery. And somehow or another I inserted that. And he said he, he thought it was interesting that Master never mentioned slavery. But he didn't. Now here's, and I mean, I'm looking at you two dear ladies, so I'm going to say a few interesting things here. <laughs> I'm going to quote um, Rome Smith, who is a black man from Los Angeles, and so therefore that gives me a little credibility. When I talk about the Jews, I can talk for myself. When I talk about black Americans, I have to quote my friends, okay? Um, he went to um, Africa. He spent seven years as our center leader in Italy, and before he came back to America, he arranged a tour of Africa. He's a man who very easily enters into whatever atmosphere, whatever culture he's in. He's just a big, outgoing person, and he enters in. Uh, the woman traveling with him said, in some subtle way, he made Door of My Heart an African song. He said, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. <laughs> he just sort of got the consciousness, and he just was singing it the same way, but it sounded like it was an indigenous song. But he expected to be going back to the homeland, you know, he had enough of that identification with his racial heritage, and he really thought he was going back to the homeland. But, but Africa is not in an elevated place, you know. It's in a very difficult, as a continent, it still experiences a great deal of difficulty. It's never really come together yet. And Ram said, it was the first time in my life I was grateful for slavery. Isn't that a strange thing? Because he saw that having taken a portion of that race and taken it off that continent um, actually created a a completely other potential um, for that strand of of human expression. Now, you have to be very, very impersonal to say those things, and that's why I'm quoting him. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because now the President of the United States has African heritage, and he would never be in that position of influence if he hadn't come out of Africa. I mean, if he was still in Africa. You know, the president of no country in Africa has the influence that Obama has over the world. I mean, just looking at racial, racial roles, you have to understand that the individuals who inhabit certain bodies move in and out of them. It's like we're not, we don't have, there's no such thing, although there is Jewish theology that says there is such a thing as a Jewish soul. I, 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 I don't believe it. <laughs> You know, and, and some, I'm sure the Catholics believe you're always a Catholic. And the Christians say you have to eventually be Christian and you'll never be saved. I mean, people do eternalize these things, but I don't think it's true. But, but the planet is set up by the grand, you know, benefactress of all human nature. And they create all the opportunities we need. Just like a Montessori teacher sets up all the different tables, you know, here we can do sand play, and here we can read books, and here we can paint, and then we have quiet time over here, so that the little kids can kind of wander around and express all the different aspects of their nature, as, as above, so below. So the whole of this planet is arranged so that the souls that come in and out of this planet have lots of options. And you can incarnate wherever you need to for whatever particular karmic balance you're trying to work out. 
So the Germans, for example, have always been known as an extremely talented people, but whose arrogance always brings them down in the end. You know, you read uh, writings from hundreds of years ago, and that's how the, the Germans are still described. You know, and, and look, it happens over and over again. And the Jews are, were always persecuted. You know, it just... And the black, the black race has a certain reality. The Chinese uh, group has a certain reality. You want to be into a, a big group society, you go into the ch- Chinese. You want to be very individualistic, you become American. You know, just... And then you get to act it out. You get to be French, you want to be from the heart, you go live in Italy and you get to just, be, you know, eat pasta and be all like that. And, you know, the Italians just are different than we are. I watch Swamiji when he's been here, sitting right here, greeting hundreds of people who've come. And because he speaks a lot of different languages, he'll, he'll you know, just greet people in different languages. And it's fun for me to watch because some of the cultures are more notable, but you know, the, whenever the Italians arrive, because there's always a few who are here, and they start talking Italian, immediately Swami starts going, ha, 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 ha. And, they, and I know, you know, this much Italian, but they all sort of say to each other words like, you exist, I exist, ha, 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 ha. That's about all they're saying. But, and then the Americans come, and it's enthusiastic, but it's, I'm so glad that you're here. Yes, it's a pleasure to see you. And then the Italians come in and go, ha, 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 ha. It's just, cultures are different. You know, everyone is different. We all know that. But it gives us different places. So um, they're here to serve us, but at the same time they exemplify different qualities. So if, you don't, if you're not personal about it, you can stand back and look and think, oh, that's very interesting. You know, a piece of that race was extracted from its natural place and placed somewhere else where completely different opportunities would be possible. Now, so that's why... So Swamiji commented, he said even though on the face of it, slavery would look like really terrible karma. Maybe it wasn't. Odd, huh? He just proposed it in a speculative way, too, and that's all I can say, but I did need to correct my mistake. Yes, Leigh? Is it on now? Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, since you mentioned that before, I had thought about, about this revised perspective on the reason for... Uh, our present bad karma resulting from the mistreatment of Native Americans and not from the Africans as well. And um, I'm sure that slavery didn't help us. Yes. The only the only <laughs> point here is that Master didn't mention it. Right, right. And that, that was the only reason we were going on this. That's, because that's a very, Swamiji that's a, expected yes. him to mention it and he didn't. And that's, then I had also changed things and I wanted that, to that's, yeah, that's uh-huh. one point I wanted to make probably. Is he didn't mention it as the main reason, but I suspect yeah. that it was a part yeah. of it. That, but also... Uh, as much as Ram speaks a, a, a truth, perhaps, uh, I th- believe, in my very humble opinion, that we already have paid a price for that, for that slavery, for the horrendous things we did to the Africans, and, went, and that payment was called the Civil War. Well, you know, I was just thinking, too, also, the country was divided on the issue. Yeah. You know, not, not all, I mean, the, even though half the country endorsed slavery, the other half sacrificed enormously to eradicate it. Right. So you're right. In and fact, both sides paid over, over 600,000, more than we have lost in all the wars combined. And that's yeah. when our country was much smaller, too. That's a very good point, Lee. And Abraham Lincoln, it. excuse me, yeah. and Abraham Lincoln himself suggested in the second yeah. inaugural that the deeper reason for the war was retribu- divine retribution for that mm-hmm. as well. He said it in a very eloquent way. No, that's way. a very, very important and very yeah. interesting point. You see how interesting it gets when you stand back and look at it from a cosmic point of view? You know, I want to just bring a point into this. 
because I, I, I can see we're not going to get too far into this, but the reason that we're doing this course right now, how to manifest through the power of yoga, is because we need to develop right consciousness. We need to gain mastery over our own energies. You know, you, you've hardly needed this course until now because, because it's just money was everywhere in this country. It was just easy. You get a job, you quit a job, you get another job, you know, it's just... But if, if everything gets more difficult, we're going to need to be much stronger and more focused in ourselves. We're going to need to really understand how to manifest the right consciousness. And it seemed extremely timely, not merely because people may have financial problems, but we just need to be much stronger in ourselves. And that's a lot of why right now it seemed like such a good time to be teaching this. Let's really learn. I mean, just this simple... Um, point that we learned a couple of lessons ago. Put the object of what you want in front of you and, and ro- vibrate, uh, rotate energy around it and visualize it and, and just see it. See yourself on this, you know, golden web. Polish your heart. Radiate this energy. In other words, align ourselves with divine forces in a powerful conscious method because we, we can't, our free ride may be ending really soon. We may get to experience what many other countries in the world have experienced, which is, you know, trauma on our own soil. We've sent our men and women away to be traumatized, but we've never had them, we've never had it be an all-pervasive reality where we live. So, it, except for the Civil War. Yeah. Yes, Jason? How do you work with the fact or the experience that let's say I say okay I'm going to do all this I'm going to sell my stocks I'm going to do buy land and move to Palo Alto or dig a hole whatever it is can that also be thought of as affirming the worst by your action and but see this is what I was trying to say before you know we, we can't just be airheads about this you know if you know something is coming and you act it's only affirming it if you're fearful and if you're selfish in it. If you just see that there's a, you know, a, a crack in the wall and the building's going to fall down or might and you move out because the roof might fall on your head, that's not affirming the worst. That's seeing the crack on the wall and reading the implications of it. It's, it's idiotic to be otherwise. You know, it, it, it's not affirming the worst to act realistically. Affirming the worst is when you begin to get anxious and afraid and, and, and your whole vibration becomes in tune with that negativity. To merely make honest and realistic preparations for a probable occurrence. And also, you have to understand, God is in charge. It, we flatter ourselves to think, oh, if I store food, I'm really helping cause a famine. Don't flatter yourself, kids. You think you have that much power in your mind? You don't. You know, individually, you don't. And cosmically, you don't. This is not being caused by one or two or three people. This is a cosmic reality. This is what I was trying to say before. We're devotees. Our spiritual teacher, our guru, has declared, do these things, a cataclysm is coming. And then we say, well, gee, wouldn't it be a bad idea to be affirming that? Well, don't you think that was kind of bad for him to affirm it? You know, if like if it's a bad idea to declare it, he wouldn't have done it. And so you, you see your respect for authority and respect for someone wiser than you 
is the countervailing measure. Otherwise, you can just say to one another, don't you think it's affirming it? I think it's affirming it. She thinks it's affirming it. Do you think it's affirming it? You know, and you just wander around trying to guess what's true. And I'm not really willing to do that. Just because somebody who's very charismatic and entertaining tells me that I'm affirming the worst. But what kind of consciousness does he have? Who is he? Is he really a saint? Has he proven that he has the voice of God. You know, who is he? Source is everything. Otherwise, you're just playing around with your mind. You are demonstrating what a lot of this lesson is about, which is knowledge alone is not enough. Because logic alone is not enough. You have to have an intuitive feeling in your heart, and you have to base that on something. You know, this... I've had... I've been a person, and, and this... Um, I didn't even, I'd never thought of myself this way, but Shivani characterized me this way when I was in Italy last year. She said, Asha and I were, have been at Ananda, you know, together for all these years. She said, but she figured out what Swami had to offer a lot sooner than I did. That's how she put it. And I arrived, and somehow from literally the first moment I met Swami, and I always say, this is, you know, this is what I have to offer. I had the good karma to meet Swami early. I have a good memory for what he said. I understood very quickly that he spoke for Master, and I believe that that's a, that's a truth. And that's it. And once you are there, you have to follow that logic out. You can't just keep second-guessing it. And, and that's why Swami himself just keeps saying, Master declared this. Now, what I was starting to say about Swami is, but that doesn't mean that in any sense my relationship to him has ever been mindless. It's like, I'm not capable of being mindless. It would have been nice if I'd been a little more mindless at times, you know? So I didn't, as he said to me many years later, thwart him as often as I have, you know, with my own willful stupidity is the only words that I can think of. I mean, I made many, many difficulties for him because I was not mindless. I wasn't even listening. I was just blathering on on my own, you know, without knowing anything. And he was too respectful to tell me to be quiet. But... uh, I've paid attention to the effect of his actions and his energy over now nearly 40 years. Now, we, we don't have the opportunity to be able to personally examine Yogananda in the body in the same way, but most of you in this room, on some basis or another, have made a decision that there's something true here. And, at a, and we can play the game of picking and choosing, we can play the game of, oh, I'll accept his word here, but I won't accept his word there. People have played that game with Swami for years and years and years and years. Well, when he talks about Kriya, I'll listen to him. When he talks about this, how do I really know where he's coming from? Go ahead. Fine. You have to be sincere according to what you feel. You can't be mindless. Mindlessness is not good. But also, you have to be reasonable about this. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sick of people saying, but you can't talk about hard times because you might bring them about. Well, Master declared it, and I'd rather follow his example. Swami's declaring it with enormous force. I'd rather follow his example, because I think that they're setting the model for us. But then in the next breath, they say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You know, the worst that happens is we'll just die. You know, there you are. It's going to happen anyway. I love the way Swami put it. He said, a hundred years from now, no one, no one who's on this planet now will be here anyway. Whether we dribble out slowly over the next century or all go to the astral world together, it really doesn't make any difference once you're there. The instant you're out of your body, you're out of your body. 
Now, I think a lot of us are not afraid of death as much as we're afraid of grief, you know, or hunger or cold, you know, whatever it might be, or other people's sufferings. That's the real fear. But if we fear it, it's a karma that has to be faced. How can you tell if you're not free of a karma if you're afraid of it? It's one of the cardinal rules. Anything you fear is an unfinished karma. Whoa, that's a long list, isn't it? (laughs) But uh, God has that list. Master has that list. And if if we've ever said, Lord, I want to be free, he was listening. And so so then it all comes down to a matter of faith. Just really faith. Do I really believe that God is in charge of my life? And that doesn't mean do nothing. But that means, do I really believe that God will be with me? Whatever he asks of me, we're going to do it together. And, and I, I was, <laughs> until I thought of the sprout, until the sprouting came up. I didn't think of it until the sprouting came up. I'm pointing at Rick and Barbara because they've been working it all out. Until the sprouting came up, I was much more concerned because, because I just couldn't see how we were going to be able to grow food and I couldn't see how we could store enough. But once we, <laughs> once we got to sprouting, I got really relaxed. <laughs> I think that's, kind of stupid, but if it works, you know, I'm not going to challenge it at this point. But it's sort of like, you know, we work our way through our fears and whatever it is that we're afraid of. You're going to have to face it. I mean, this is the most important thing. Listen, friends, you're going to have to face it. There was a a couple, and they eventually got divorced, which was predicted by the ex-husband's remark. My wife has two settings, her way now or her way later. (laughs) But it's like, God is going to teach it to you. If you're afraid of it, you're going to have to overcome the fear. You either face it now, or you're going to face it later. And of course, we always think later is not going to be now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, go ahead, Jason. No, you weren't. You just gave me a chance to, I know. to spout. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's good. Uh-huh. But what I was actually working out in my own mind was not wanting to be within myself at cross purposes. Uh-huh. Meaning, okay, we accept this roadmap of it, all this stuff, yet at the same time, I do this meditation and think this gold and everything that I want for me. Well, I don't want the deprivation, so I want all these wonderful things and the cataclysmic not to happen and a wonderful life for my friends. And I would really visualize that sincerely but would that be going at cross purpose oh, to the well, bigger thing? Yes, in a slight sense, yes, because you have to refine your visualization. What we really want for people is not wealth and comfort. We want, we want deep, inner, spiritual satisfaction. If that comes through wealth and comfort, fine. If that comes through tremendous cataclysms, fine. Because at the end of it, all you have is your consciousness. You can be in the most beautiful home and then, did I mention it? You will die and you won't be in it anymore. You know, it's like you can't hold it. And for some people, it's like, oh, that's a long ways away. But for others of us, it's like if it's going to happen eventually, it's going to happen now. And so it's just not worth it. If God gives it to us, you know, we live very comfortably in a lovely place right now. We have this, you know, big house and all this stuff that goes on around us and it's like, okay, God gives, you can't be rude. But it's, it's only a question of spiritual growth and what do we really want for our friends. That's why 
the golden money comes. You know, wanting money, but how, how much did Swami emphasize? Because it's also give, 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 give. And what we become in the process of manifesting that is our real treasure. And if we are able to manifest like that, we can do so much good in the world. And I don't just mean we give money. We know how to manifest. We know how to focus our consciousness on righteous objectives and bring those righteous objectives about. Here's an example. Ananda. This was Swami's vision. This was his commission from Master. And he focused his energy and he manifested it. We would not be here. We would not have this teaching if Swami didn't know how to manifest. Now that was something worth doing, wasn't it? And all of us, sooner or later, you know the extent to which we can manifest for the sake of uplifting the world, the sooner we get spiritually free. So let's go for it quickly. But we really have to be very careful not to define what is good according to the likes and dislikes of the ego. Because the, like, the ego is an idiot. You know? He's our friend and he's our buddy and we have to work with him because there he is. You know, he's part of the story. But we really mustn't let him run the show. It's really a bad mistake. You know, he's a servant of higher consciousness. And that's what Swami, through these, you know, lesson number three now, that's what Swami's been saying over and over and over again. You're a, dro- a dew drop on the worldwide, on the enormous web of light. You're a, a radiating force, you know. You're part of all that is. It's just all these different ways trying to break that hypnosis of singularity. And when you visualize your friends, no, don't work at cross-purposes. Say, oh, you know, see your... What you visualize for everyone is that they be filled with light. And light is really like that's the best thing. Just ask them to be... Pray for them to be filled with light. Ask for God to fill them with light. Visualize them filled with light. Because if you're filled with light, you know what to do. Everything else follows whether you're in hard times or easy times, if you're filled with light, everything else follows. Just follow the light. Follow the light. I had a friend of mine who, who died of cancer, brain cancer. And uh, she was, and this is a little bit of a tricky story because she was dying. Oh, here I am talking to you. This is a coincidence. Okay. But she was, it was a tricky story because Master says, don't ever give up the thought of healing. You know, try to heal yourself even as you die. And so she kind of like says to me, like, what am I supposed to do with this? Because she didn't, she was dying. There was nothing that could be done. Um, And so she said, how do I reconcile those things? I said, you don't ever accept the thought that you're dying. You are dying. Just your body's dying. You don't ever accept the thought that darkness has actually overcome you. Even if, in her case, her body was riddled with cancer and she was just falling to pieces. I said, but you are always the light. And so whatever happens, you're just concentrating on that constant flow of light. And that's how you remain in a state of healing even as you die. Because you don't, you don't want to die with the thought of being ill and broken because that leads to being born with the thought of being ill and broken. So you, that's why he's saying that. You, don't, you want to die with the thought that everything's just fine. You're just dying, that's all. And the body has disintegrated, but they do that. But I'm perfectly well, because all I've ever been in the midst of this is light. Light is the key to it all. And it's very dynamic. It worked beautifully for her. She just held on to that thought, just even in the midst of everything. It was all just light. And you know, in her last day, she was just seeing the light everywhere. 
You know, she had hard times. When, when the doctor finally said there was nothing more to do because, you know, cancer can go on and on and on and on, she was very upset, my friend. And she said, I know it sounds silly, but I always thought I would get better. <laughs> she said like that. And she had to really accept. That was the, you know, that was a few months before she went. That was like years afterwards. But she said, you know, and, and then that was when we really just went to the light. And then she just stayed there, no matter what happened, right up to the very last. She just stayed there. And she was always well. Do you see? That's, that's, that's positive. That's not just saying, dying? I'm not dying. You know, which makes it impossible for anybody to relate to you, which is really not so wholesome. You know, the body may be, but I feel great. Okay, any other thoughts or questions there? Okay, let's breathe. Let's take a little break. <laughs> I was just saying, it was just really good that we're, we're um, talking about this, because I've actually been wondering, hearing Swami just um, hammer, on, hammer the point, just intensely. In fact, we had this conversation about the, this whole cycle of him saying that he was going to, you know, the, the, his near-death experience, although it wasn't of that type, but his, his karmic death time coming and going and now him being resurrected which is the only word for it um, and his expectation now that he's going to be around you know well into his 90s which is we're talking about a decade which is a totally different thing and we were just chatting about it and I said well sir it, it's always seemed so crazy that you would check out just before these hard times would come and he said he said yeah I've been waiting my whole life I don't want to miss the main event he said <laughs> so, <laughs> he talked about wanting to be a martyr this time, and he explained that a lot. You know, there's another one, Jason. Just as because you're the one who brought up affirmation, I'm not accusing you. I'll point to George too because he brought it up too. Because you brought up the subject, which for me was just a green light to say things I've wanted to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can I can take a very thin thread and use it to open a door yeah. <laughs> if I'm primed and ready. But Swamiji for a long time has talked about wanting his death to be useful. And uh, Master made, made the enigmatic statement uh, that he would find spiritual liberation, he would find God, he would be freed. That, that he's a jeev, you know, that, that statement means that Swami is a jivan mukta and will become a full siddha, a siddha by the end of this life. But death itself will be the final sacrifice. Those are Master's words. And, and Swami himself says, what could that possibly mean? Because he's utterly, completely indifferent to death, so there's no, like, dying means nothing to him. He's also pretty impervious to pain and suffering and humiliation and all the other things that can go with it. So he's, he's, he's often thought that that meant that he would have a martyr's death. Now, you know, we all go, mm, like this. And he's talked about this for a long time about, um, and now he's, he talked about it much more openly over this weekend, and he was even explaining it, which, you know, I, I haven't known how open to be, but now that he's being more open. But he, he's, I gave it a lot of, I've been thinking about it a lot, because I don't like to be blindsided by things. My way of dealing with potential difficulties is to visualize them. You know, just imagine it. I think that's, I, you know, my interest in how do people cope with really traumatic circumstances may prove to have been prophetic because I really have enormous vision, images in my mind of how, when everything breaks down, how you cope. 
how, how people cope. And the fact that they do cope is also there in my mind. Um, so when he's talked about the fact that he might be martyred, you know, what, what does that mean in our age? That probably means assassinated. That's mostly what it means. You know, he's not likely to be poisoned. Or When we were in Lugano um, last May, and he was so ill in that, you know, so ill, and that was the time when he really, as he says, he could have died from any one of three different conditions. I just kept thinking, but I just don't think he's going to die in a hotel room in Switzerland. It just doesn't seem likely to me that this illustrious life will end at the Dante Hotel in Lugano. It just seems so <laughs> unlikely. So even though it was, it was very real, what was happening, it just did not feel like that. But the fact is, what happens when a person... Uh, well, Jesus was martyred. So you go right to the crucifixion, because that was the big one. You know, and, and Christianity has really been big on martyrs ever since, because their founders started the trend. And... Uh, <laughs> as things begin so they continue. But uh, the statements that are, uh, that are made about Jesus' crucifixion are true. There's been certain dogmas that have distorted that fundamental truth. But the fundamental truth was, he took the karma of his disciples into his own body. That's what Yogananda did also. Yogananda took the karma of his disciples into his own body. In Yogananda's case, I think Swami was talking about it this weekend a little um, Yogananda's knees became profoundly affected and he, it was very painful and he couldn't walk. And he, he was working out on his own body the karma of his disciples. I mean, it's a very... All the autobiography of a yogi says about that is by a subtle yogic technique. In Autobiography of a Yogi, there's the story of Sri Yukteswar, we do not go to Kashmir. There keep... Uh, a master keeps trying to go to Kashmir with his guru and Sri Yukteswar keeps thwarting the trip, and then finally they go, and then Master becomes very, uh, Sri Yukteswar becomes very ill. And then Yogananda writes about the illness was not, uh, Sri Yukteswar had no karma. He was an avatar. There was no reason for him to be sick. He didn't have any karma to work out of his own, but he was able to draw the karma of his disciples and then run the energy through his body by a subtle yogic technique. And the way you think about that is, um, I've explained this before, but I mean, some of you have been here less often, so let me say it, say it again. When we do something that is contrary to divine law, we set a certain dissonant energy in motion. And because we have identified with our actions, because we are egoic beings, and we believe that we are the doer, and we are the one who has done that, that the energy of that action is tied to us by that thread of identification with ego and ego as the active one. But what also happens is there are many thwarting cross-currents going. So even though we may conduct, do a dissonant action, for example, if you're the chairman of a, a, a committee and you're a powerful individual and you're making big plans and somebody in the room is more timid and they raise their hand and suggest something, and you just say, oh, that's a ridiculous idea, we're not going to think about that, and then you just move right on. Well, that may have been a, a, a very unkind, enthusiasm-killing action that was based on your own importance, maybe you don't like that person. It was, it was out of tune with divine law. But because you're powerful and you're in charge, you could just run over that person and just keep going. And it's going to be a long time before that dissonance actually catches up with you. 
because of the thwarting cross-currents of your ego. Or I've used the example of a, if a 12-year-old child knocks over a 3-year-old and just laughs and runs away, the 3-year-old can't get his revenge, but he'll remember. And when he grows up to be a rich man and you come to him for a job, there's not a chance you're going to get that job. But in between, your superior power allows you to outrun it. But it, because it's tied to you, it never goes away. But the, the real point of, of being receiving the karmic retribution for out-of-harmony actions is to gradually bring us to an understanding of the true nature of life and to a dedicated decision to live in harmony instead of in dissonance with that. So over the course of many lifetimes, we create a lot of carnage behind us The past lives of all men are dark with many shames. We have lots of things behind us, but gradually we're also learning. And so we may may have had enough suffering that we get to the point where we have become devotees, and and best of all, we've become disciples of a great master, of a God-realized master who has the capacity to activate that subtle yogic technique. So now we are under the umbrella protection of this great master, who whether it's Jesus or Krishna or Buddha or Yogananda or whomever it might be. But we still have all these karmas that are chasing us. But when they're, um, but we may not require the lessons that we required when we created them because we've already learned that. So the guru, who has the capacity to see the whole picture, sees it coming and it's a, it's a force coming at you, but he realizes it's just not necessary for you to be smashed by that thing anymore because you've already learned what it would have taught you. So he just literally puts his aura in front of it. But the dissonant force still has to strike something. This is my extremely you know, infantile explanation of the subtle yogic technique. It has to strike something, So he draws all that energy through his own physical body. That's what Jesus did when he was crucified. That's why he died for our sins. And and but that that gets a little complicated in terms of how how you know just various aspects, which I won't go into now. But but he did. He died for the at least for the sins of his disciples. And afterwards, they were all highly elevated in spirit because he literally worked out a lot of their karma for them and freed them spiritually. And soon after. They became very powerful spiritually and were able to go on and do what was required of them. Now, um, let's see. Oh, so for Swamiji, he, he's, he's often remarked that, you know, if he were martyred, it would really help this work. And on one hand, you think, it, my first thought, which was sort of a naive one, was, well, we'd get a lot of publicity. You know, but that just that sort of seemed like, didn't really seem like enough. But then I realized that what it would do, you see, is it would take an enormous amount of negative karma and draw it to a focus and burn it out all at once. It would both, you know, whose karma, what karma, the karma of Ananda, the karma of the world, the karma of those of us who have been dedicated to this path for a long time. But you see, in order for there to be a, a, a sufficiently powerful gathering of evil, in order to, to push individuals or one individual to to act like that, you see a tremendous amount of negative energy would be drawn to a focus. And received, and if received in the way that Jesus received it, 
I mean, that's, that was what happened with Christ. Remember what happened there? He brought, remember, do you remember what happened there? <laughs> he, he brought to his people, the Jewish people, this new revelation. And, but that revelation violated, you know, the entrenched, um, self-serving power structure of a corrupt priesthood. You know, the thing that, and I always get in so much trouble when I start talking about this, but I'll say it one more time. They were all Jews. You know, all his disciples were Jews and the people who were against him were Jews. It was an internal struggle. There was nobody else. The Romans actually finally carried out the execution. But the, the dissonance was created between the corrupt priesthood and the disciples. So there was that, that force that was trying to bring this new revelation forward and then there was this entrenched uh, establishment that didn't want to have it and they were, you know, the entrenched was totally threatened by it and so they eventually, you know, gathered all their resistance and thought they were going to snuff the guy out finally and that would be the end of that. But of course, that very action, because it was untruth and if you, if you push untruth truth has to come out somewhere. It's, it's because it's the waves of the ocean. When we were being sued by SRF and they were being so dishonorable, Swami wrote and he said, look, if you keep pushing untruth, truth will have to come out somewhere. Your, acu- your very attempt to, to destroy us by, by non-dharmic methods is going to give us power because you're, you, you're, you're forcing it. And they did. In fact, the lawsuit was the best thing that ever happened to us. Their effort to snuff us out, in fact, empowered us completely. So the effort to snuff out the, the heresy, which was Jesus' teaching at that time, actually resulted in the flowering of that teaching. Because his whole story is the crucifixion and the resurrection. The passion, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, isn't it? It would be, I mean, that's what made Christianity. And then Swami interestingly said, just he just said at some point later that if it hadn't been for the martyrs that came afterwards, that also put, was really established Christianity when the Romans or whoever was really persecuting the Christians at that point, I think the Jews were out of the picture by then, you know, throwing them to the lions and all those really grim things that they had to go through. But he said that's really what made Christianity, probably because... They drew the karma like this and also the courage and the faith and the power that they demonstrated, you know, brought it all up. It, it, proved, it proved that what they had was no mere philosophy, but actually had this divine power because of the way they could go in and face the ultimate fear. So Swami talks about the fact, I want my death, the word he always uses, I want my death to be useful. You know, I want it to serve the cause that I've given my life for. So he wants to draw karma to a focus and do something useful. You know, he wants to give up the body in such a way, you know, let the body have, serve one last function before it goes away. Thinking of it myself, I think, well, the only difference between him just, you know, having a, a more, you know, less dramatic death is the shock. It would be the shock of it, and probably if it happened suddenly the sense in the moment of evil, which would probably be very horrible. You know, if, if, if any individual or group became strong enough to attack the light so forcefully, I think it's going to be an ugly moment. But at the same time, it could also be a gloriously uplifting moment because of the transcending of that evil. 
you know. I, I, it's hard to imagine. I mean, what was it like to stand at the foot of the cross? Only a few people did it, and they didn't really write first-person accounts of it. And so we always think of it in terms of Mary Magdalene weeping and weeping and weeping and, you know, the, the, the horror of it and all that. But, you know, John just kind of stood there and doesn't, didn't, doesn't say very much. And, and I was actually contemplating, what was John doing? Because the focus is so much on the women and uh, the mother and uh, Mary Magdalene. But John was just standing there. Was he, I mean, Jesus himself would have been in an ecstatic state. The mere fact that his body being crucified wouldn't have touched his consciousness. And Master Swami talked this weekend about Master when he was going through that with his body, said that he decided to experience what other people would experience. And it was very unpleasant. And then he just went back into his own superconscious state in which his body was just one of many bodies and what difference did it make? But what was, you know, I... I I've just felt, you know, John must have been in complete communion with Christ. And would he have suffered? Was he in bliss? It's very interesting, isn't it, when you think about it. You see the difference between the ego? If he's watching his guru carry out this glorious destiny for which he was born, where is the suffering? I think about this, you know, these cataclysmic events we were certainly born for this, of course. So if we're living through what we were born to experience, which is going to be the making of us, of us spiritually, is this bad? How do you ever make that bad? It's bad only from the ego's point of view, but the ego is an idiot. You know, It has such, a, has such short-term goals, it just can't see the picture at all. You know, It's just a baby, just wanting somebody to do something to make it more comfortable. Okay. Well, anything else? <laughs> I feel a little bit like Swamiji talked about how, Swam, how Master, whatever the subject, would digress to talk about the importance of communities and, and about cataclysms too. And so he, 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 always, uh, he always tells the one where Master was, the announced topic was my trip to Assisi. And he spent the whole time talking about communities and things like this. And at the very end, he said, and so my trip to Assisi. <laughs> so whenever, in any circumstance, someone goes way off the topic, we always end by saying, and so my trip to Assisi. <laughs> so that's the end of tonight. God bless you. Needless to say, we're still on lesson three. <laughs>